0: My name is Ali, I'm a doctor
1: and YouTuber, I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer, and you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity and the human condition.
0: Hello and welcome back to Not Overthinking. This is part two of our uh, two-part special featuring The Psychology of Money, the book by Morgan Housel that uh, we are sort of discussing some of the key ideas, insights and distillations from uh hopefully you've listened to part one if you haven't then it'll be on your favorite podcast player just search for not overthinking and find part one it'll probably make a bit more sense if you listen to the first part as well um and before we get started with this part two just a very quick message to say thank you to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode if you haven't heard by now and if you haven't I'm not quite sure why Skillshare is a fantastic online learning community community with thousands of online classes on all sorts of topics from entrepreneurship and illustration to graphic design and coding and video editing Uh, I have lots of my own classes on Skillshare. I've got two about productivity, two about how to study for exams, one on how to edit videos, and one on how stoicism has improved my life and has made me happier. I think that one's quite a good one. It's one that I did with my friend Sam, who is a philosophy and religious studies teacher in London. Uh, He's also big into stoicism this school of ancient greek philosophy uh, and we talk a lot about the principles and tactics from that that help us live happier more productive lives so certainly check that out uh, head over to skillsharecom overthinking which will give you a 2 month free trial and then after your trial's up uh, the annual premium subscription is less than $10 a month uh, skillshare is fantastic uh Tamar and I both pay for it even though they sponsor our stuff uh cuz you can actually learn some pretty decent things on that and most recently i was taking a class on uh how to take care of the house plans in my house Uh, because that was my form of procrastination from actually doing work. Anyway, Skillshare.com slash not overthinking. And actually the first 1000 people to hit that link will get the uh, two month free trial. I think it's now a like, you know, people limited offer. So Skillshare.com slash not overthinking. Thank you. And without further ado, let's get into the episode. Chapter six is called Tales You Win. Um, And there's a nice example of how Disney apparently lost loads of money on their first 400 cartoons. These were like short animated cartoons and they just lost money on like all of them. And they were a completely failing company. And then Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs comes out and absolutely changes the game. Mate. And it didn't <laughs> what a film. 401st time lucky. <laughs> um, and it like, it, it really didn't matter how bad everything else was. All it took was that one film to su- succeed and to succeed so far beyond what to, 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 to sort of sort of like make up for the 400 fail cartoons many many times over and he says it's kind of similar I feel like it's, it's kind of similar for YouTube videos in that you have like hundreds of fairly mediocre ones and that occasionally you'll have one or two videos that perform like really really well that bring in the majority of the subscribers the majority of the revenue um, apparently in 2018 Amazon drove 6% of the S&P 500 growth which is quite a lot because there's 500 companies in there and Amazon drove 6% of the growth of the, the whole index Uh, And within Amazon, it was mostly Amazon Prime and Amazon Web Services themselves, amongst hundreds of other things that Amazon does. Equally, Apple made up 7% of the S&P 500 returns in 2018, and that was mostly the iPhone. So his overall point is that a few things account for the vast majority of the results. Um, And there's a a nice quote, quote, which is uh, pilots say that being a pilot is hours and hours of boredom punctuated by moments of sheer terror. I think sort of similar to what being an anesthetist is like. Uh, and he talks about how he, he, he runs a few numbers and talks about how he says, how you behaved in a few months in 2008 will do more for your lifetime earnings than how you behaved in the eight years prior. Um, he says a good investor is a man or woman who can do the average thing while those around them are going crazy. And so, yeah, I I think this was, this was nice because a, it made me think, okay, it's, I, I actually don't need to worry if. (laughs) <laughs> a lot of my videos in the last month or two have been performing fairly mediocrely because that's fine. Like this is just how the world works. There was a nice quote. Apparently when uh, Jeff Bezos came out with the fire phone, I don't know if you guys remember this It was a few years ago. Yeah. And the a flop mate Amazon fire phone completely sucked. And apparently the uh, the, the board members were like, what the hell's going on? Jeff, and Jeff apparently said, "If you think that's a big failure, you've got no idea. We're working on so many failures right now that'll it make the fire <laughs> Phone look like a blip." <laughs> and they, he just kind of owned it. Um, equally, Netflix CEO Hastings Reed Hastings is that his name? Yeah. Um, he like at, at some point in 2018 he said, "Our hit ratio is way too high. We have to make to, we, we, we have to we have to take more risk. We should have a higher cancel rate overall because not enough people were canceling their Netflix subscriptions." so so this guy was like okay we need to cancel our sort of some of our best performing tv shows because they show that we're not actually taking any risks and we need to try and kind of move move the needle push the envelope further a bit um also yeah the standard thing about sort of all the pro comedians testing their material for like 50 months in comedy clubs before
1: going to their netflix special mate this ties into uh i've been cooking up a theory oh yeah Um, about kids no 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 (laughs) unrelated to kids well, okay. Uh, <laughs> That's a first. <laughs> but essentially, I think... Mate, you're going you're gonna to accuse me of, like, harking on about averages. But <laughs> Not at all. I think we're trained, when it comes to numbers, to think that the, uh, that the most meaningful summary statistic is the average. Mm. And we're trained to just, like, look at any list of things through the average when the real question to be asking... In many, I think in, in most of the very important things in life, the real question to be asking is like, what is the maximum of this list? And what is the minimum of this list? For example, you know, you mean the range, sorry, you mean the range, no, no, maximum or minimum. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Like, you know, for example, if you are in the, you know, if you're like dating and you're trying to find, you know, a long-term life partner or something, Mm. Your, aver- your average success rate is completely irrelevant. <laughs> the only thing that's relevant is sort of the the end result, you know, the, ma- the maximum of this list, right? Uh, and I-, I think, like, s- s- similar to, like, you know, a-, a lot of economic things are sort of dominated by these power law returns. You know, it's kind of what Bezos is talking about. You know, this is basically how VC works, where, you know, getting one Facebook or even one, one company that's like 10 times smaller, or hundred times smaller than Facebook will make the other hundred companies you invest in be completely irrelevant for your portfolio. Um, I think we're just naturally, like I think everything we're told is about, it just makes us interpret things through the lens of t- taking an average mm. or like understanding some kind of, uh, you know, hit rate or something when that is very rarely the meaningful um, sort of statistic to be looking at. It's, a, it's an early, early days for this theory. I think it's actually deeply profound. Is, is that not what the floor of averages talks about? No. Mm. <laughs> okay. No, I mean, it does. Okay. No, no, no. The, the, the floor of averages is different. What I'm, what I'm saying is actually, is actually different. Okay. What I'm saying is like. You're saying that by default, we think the average is the most meaningful
0: uh, composite of a set of numbers. Uh, but in, in reality, in, in a lot of circumstances, the maximum slash minimum is actually a lot more important. Or, in a yeah. lot of circumstances, the average is irrelevant because because outliers dictate such a huge percentage of the o- o- overall whatever matters. Yeah, yeah, sure. Stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Mike, you look deep in thought.
2: I know. I, I don't think your average dating success rate matters, table. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? Sorry? I don't think your average dating success rate matters, table. <laughs> no, <enough>.
0: Thanks, man. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, moving on. Um, chapter 7 is called Freedom. Uh, and I really like this one because this resonated with a lot of the the things that i feel i believe intuitively by intuitively i mean probably as a result of the people i follow on twitter um he says the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up in the morning and think i can do whatever i want today he says happiness is hard to define and means different things to different people but a common denominator within happiness is autonomy it's priceless autonomy is the highest dividend that money buys or that money pays um apparently there was a guy called campbell in 1981 who wrote a book called the sense of well-being in America where he did like loads of research about sort of various things that seem to make people happy. And he concluded that the ability to do what you want is the broadest variable that makes people happy, controlling your time, independence and autonomy. Um, do you, do you, do you agree with
2: that? Yes. I mean, it, hmm. I'm just trying to think how that interacts with what you said earlier about still doing stuff that is you know good around making money in a situation where you, you have enough money. Yeah. Um, and whether the fact that you do stuff to still make money contradicts you kind of having autonomy? Uh,
0: I think I think autonomy is just sort of the ability to work on the ability to do what you want, when you want, with whom you want, and for how long you want. Sure. And I, for some people, that might involve doing things that happen to be revenue-generating activities, and for you, it might involve taking a walk in the forest.
2: But the it, point is that I, I think I think the yeah. point is, isn't that I would do like specifically stuff that doesn't make money. It's just okay. that I, I wouldn't care about it. Okay. But it seems like if you think you would still do stuff that makes money, it seems like that's a lack of autonomy. If you think that's some kind of constraint on what you might do. I don't think I, I, w- I wouldn't say it's a lack of autonomy. I think
0: uh, Well, I, I can't speak for, for, for others, but in my circumstance, it's more that I recognize that the sorts of things I enjoy doing are the sorts of things that also happen to make money as a side effect in general. Like, yes, I do enjoy playing board games with friends and stuff. And I'd probably do more of that. I do enjoy playing squash, um, and I do more of that. But I also enjoy, for example, sharing stuff on the internet, which is inherently a revenue generating activity or can be, has the potential. Wait, 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 wait. Let's hold up, hold up. All right, here we go. All right. <laughs> yeah. And so what I'm saying is that you can have autonomy, but the, the, the autonomy is just the ability to choose without, w-
1: without compulsion one way or another. I'm skeptical of what you're saying. Okay. Why? Here's why. All right. First reason I'm skeptical of what you're saying mm. We had a similar discussion at some point in the last 6 to 12 months. Mm. And you said that if you won the lottery, you probably make far fewer YouTube videos than you currently do. Yeah, I'd make fewer. I'd make them when I want as opposed to once a week because I feel like I need I need to appease okay. the algorithm. And certainly at the time I wouldn't make we, zero. When we had this conversation at the time, it feels like it felt like the spirit of what you were saying was that, you know, you'd make a few a year or something like that like
0: potentially i mean like based on as as in at that point it would literally just become a tool for creative expression and for teaching other people and for impact on the world and stuff and in our sort of unlimited money scenario those would be the things that i would then start to care about far more than about making money okay and so for example if i had like courses coming out i'd still i still want to make the courses but i'd make them available completely for free because at that point you might as well you're telling me that if right
1: <laughs> you're telling me that if you had unlimited money yeah and if uh, three months from now you uh, put out a free notion for students course on skillshare.com
0: <laughs> probably not on skillshare probably on youtube <laughs> Wow. Okay. Maybe you're a saint or something. <laughs> but uh, are you telling me you wouldn't if you if you had something that you enjoyed and you 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 cared about and you
2: thought you know people I don't, would benefit? Really on... like the unlimited money scenario is maybe a bit hard to think about. So let's go back to the one where it's like five million. Oh, so okay. It's I mean, fifty I mean, years, hundred thousand. Yeah, sure. So like you've got enough to cover you, but yeah. it's not unlimited. Yeah, I'd still make tutorials on the internet. It's fun <laughs> for, for free on YouTube. Yeah. About
0: about Notion. Um, <laughs> uh, if I found a particularly compelling use case for Notion, as in. So, for example, with Notion, they sponsor videos once a month. Okay. It's quite, it's quite hard to come up with Notion content once a month. Uh, but I, I, would still want to make Notion videos, even if I wasn't being paid a penny for it, because I think it's, it's actually good content, and people message me saying that, oh my god, I discovered Notion and it's changed my life, and blah blah blah. You know, it's like I'd, I'd, I'd still want to make a, tu- 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 a tutorial about how to set up your own personal blog,
1: <laughs> just because I think more, more people should do it. It's just, it's just kind of fun. Okay, fine, that's great. Uh, the other objection yes. I, uh, the other objection I have, I think I can say objection overall then. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I, and and it, it, well, the reason why I don't know about whether that's overruled is, yeah, is because of this thing, which yeah. is that I don't think you're in a good position to judge how you'd actually feel if you had what you felt like was unlimited money. I suspect we're saying five million here right now. Yeah, I suspect for you that would not feel like I never have to. You know, I think your number is actually a lot higher. Um, but if you did have what would really be unlimited money for you. I don't think you're in a position right now to judge what, what you'd actually do mm. because, you know, I think you're motivated to make money at the moment because money is actually like a meaningful thing. It's like, say it's like, uh, you know, it all comes once again, it all comes back to <laughs> aspiration Kids? by Ag- Agnes Callers. Okay. <laughs> where your current value system and the current, your current things that you find meaning in, mm are that way because you have not had unlimited money <laughs> thus far in your life and so you know it's it's it sounds very cute and stuff when you say the game thing of like oh i, I see it as points in a game great you know, that's, that's a nice framing right now but yeah. i think the points in the game are only meaningful because the points actually mean something because money means something right now i think like If you, you know, I I find it hard to imagine that if money didn't mean anything, these these things that you're calling points in a game, I I find it hard to imagine that they would register as points.
0: I don't know what you mean. You're saying that if, you know, okay, so let's say I had a billion pounds instead of 5 million, which would be like, you know, how, how do you even spend a billion pounds in a lifetime? What in that circumstance, the way I think I would behave is that I would probably care a lot more about impact on the world and stuff and care a lot less about actively making money but I suspect that some of the things that I will do will still just make money as a side effect. Uh, I think there's
1: things making money as a side effect versus thing, you know, taking deliberate actions in order to generate more revenue. Sure. But I mean, so I might, if I cared about impact
0: on the world, uh, so in, in that situation, I can see myself caring a lot more about impact on the world right. and recognizing that actually if I could somehow make 100 billion, then I can eradicate, I don't know, malaria, for example. And at that point I can start thinking, okay, cool. I now have all the money I need. I'm now not making money for myself. I'm actually making money to improve the world. I'm trying to do it in ways that will benefit the world, et cetera, et cetera. uh, Like I don't see anything particularly wrong with that line of reasoning.
1: No, no, I can get on board with that. Okay. I I think... What do you take issue with? I, I don't quite understand your point. I think I take issue with the thing you were saying earlier about like, you know, even if I had like enough money and I wanted to like do some painting, I'd try and like... Sell, sell my paintings for some for okay some so, so you're things. saying if i had a billion pounds i
0: probably wouldn't bother selling my paintings yes no i probably would i'd probably just do it at a, ch- at a charity auction where they're going to sort of come on
2: large large premiums and be money be be donated to a charity but assuming that they're not worth that amount so you can sell them for like a few bucks on online or something or you can not sell them what's the choice then what's the decision oh at that point, is too much effort to sell them for a few bucks online
0: <laughs> right i mean, <laughs> I'd, at, at that point, I'd, ra- I'd, I'd rather sell them for like five million and give that money to charity and have at a charity auction, it purely as like a token thing.
1: I guess what I'm really objecting to is you yeah. saying that you see making money as an inherently fun side hobby. Okay, why is why is that objectionable? I don't think it's true. I don't think it's. I think you it's. You only- think it's true right now because money
0: still means something. Yes. But you exactly. Think it wouldn't be true if money literally stopped meaning anything at all. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Like- we've all played the sims when we we're younger and like when you when you get to a certain point in terms of the household revenue the game becomes like no fun okay so you, make too much so you money. think
0: that warren buffett and charlie munger have not like it's just like don't enjoy investing i'm not sure what motivates them okay you think the fact that warren buffett is has pledged to okay. donate 99 of his net worth to charity or upon his death or whatever that thing is is not some motivating factor in telling yeah, 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 that's that great. hey actually i kind of want
1: to make some more money yeah, but this is not. That means that it's not that making. Maybe Warren and Charlie inherent truly inherently find it fun to make money. Okay, if the reason you I mean, want to make money, that's what
2: investing is, isn't it? Sorry, isn't that what investing is? It's possible they can enjoy the whole process of trying to beat the market okay. without like just thinking. Okay, this but, is another million.
1: But if your if your mindset is like. I'm a billionaire and I want to eradicate malaria. Yeah. You're not trying to make more money for the inherent fun of making money. You're trying to make more money with like a clear objective in mind. Yeah, but making, but,
0: but if you're that sort of person, you probably also enjoy the, the, the making of money, which is a side effect of like the growing of businesses and the acquiring of products. And, you know, like making money tends to be, correl- tends to be a proxy for doing useful things slash adding value to the world in some way. I agree with that. And a lot of the activities that are associated with making money are also inherently enjoyable. In fact, making money itself is inherently enjoyable as evidenced by, by things like gambling. Like it's inherently enjoyable. Like if, if the only thing you are doing or, or things like algorithmic trading, like if you're, you're literally creating an algorithm whose job is to print money,
1: that's, that's kind of fun. Sorry? That's fun if the money... Okay, I think you just... Maybe you're just using the word inherently wrong. Saying that things I enjoy happen to make money that that doesn't mean that money making money is inherently fun that means that some things are fun and money happens to be being made right no but i'm I, i'm
0: saying i'm saying that i think for me making money is inherently fun because i can't imagine this uh, I, mean, I mean i mean fine if if i were to wash dishes to make money that wouldn't be fun because i don't enjoy washing dishes but you'd be
1: gaining money yeah but i don't enjoy washing the dishes okay so that means the money is not the inherent thing there's nothing in there's, there's nothing inherently fun about making about, the money and making well, your, well, it it, it, depends, it depends what you're doing for the money right and, and if it depends what you're doing for the money it suggests that <laughs> the money is not the inherent thing yeah. the thing is something else and the money is like a is a side effect of the thing i think we're just talking about your poor use of the word inherent <laughs> so my word inherent was the world so
0: when i say that making money is inherently fun in my head i'm imagining sort of activities related to growing businesses starting products doing that sort of stuff yeah. as opposed to toiling away washing dishes yes i mean what what you're saying
1: is is that it's not making money. That's inherently fun. It's you know, just you know, doing useful in businesses, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> creating content. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like the mo- Mac. You understand exactly what I'm saying, right? I I agree with your point about the use of the word inherently. Okay, good. Okay, you're just misusing a word. Okay,
0: so your interpretation of my interpretation of the word inherently is is, is sort of in. In reasonable scenarios, that would that the the reasonable person would bring to mind. Your use of the word inherently is no, in one hundred percent of circumstances. No, no,
1: I no, no. yeah. Inherently, I think is more about like which way the cause, which way the causality, yeah. <laughs> which way the causality flows. Hashtag What what, what you're really saying is yeah. The things that end up making money often end up being fun in themselves. Yeah. And that is almost the opposite of saying that making money is inherently fun. Okay, no, no, no. I, I, I don't think
0: so. I think, for example, building a business that is losing money is not fun. Okay. Building a business that makes money is fun.
2: <laughs> is it fun, table? <laughs>
0: Very good. <laughs> what do you reckon, table? <laughs> I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so what are you saying? So when, when my business was making money and growing, it was really fun. When it was losing money and declining, it was really not fun. The, uh, ultimately, the activities were the same, but it was
1: money being made versus money being lost. That was the- Right, because, it, because in the current world, money is meaningful to you. And you know there's a bunch of stuff tied up in the fact that your business is like identity, th- you know, whatever, like okay, money- fine. Is- I apologize for the use of the word inherently. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think it's a pretty big mistake to be honest. <laughs> <Cancel>. <laughs>
2: yeah.
0: Um coming going back to chapter seven, which is all about freedom. Um there's a funny quote. Uh apparently the apparently the author spent some time uh, doing an internship in investment banking. And apparently there was a, a saying that, huh, if you don't come into work on Saturday, don't bother coming back on Sunday.
1: Um <laughs> <laughs> that's good.
2: that's really good
1: yeah
0: that was one of my favorite quotes in the book Um,
1: (laughs) that's really good I'm glad you find this as amusing as I did I love these little like sayings that certain industries have you know there's another really funny money saying which is (laughs) something like (laughs) It's something like if you owe the bank a million dollars, that's your problem. <laughs> if you owe the bank a hundred million dollars, that's the bank's problem, or something, so, <laughs> something to that effect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um.
0: Then we talk, a, you know, a fair bit about using you. Uh, oh, the, he he's got a nice quote from Derek Sivers, our pal Derek Sivers here. Um. Apparently, what's so Derek Sivers for those unfamiliar with the story? He sort of made this company called CD baby. And then he sold it at the age of like 30 something, 40 something, whatever for like $22 million. Uh, and he would be asked in interviews that how did it feel kind of selling that company? And, and then you became financially free. And he would say, no, I became free when I was 22, when I realized that I just needed $500 a month to live. And I could make that by busking on the streets. Um, everything else beyond that was just sort of ice, icing on the cake or, or equivalent. I thought that was a nice thing. Legend. Yeah. um, other notes I've taken: so using our wealth to buy time is the highest return. Yeah, fairly uncontroversial. Um, There's sort of he's got one explanation for for the the phenomenon that uh, over time, over the last sort of few decades, the world has become, you know, every, basically everyone has become a lot more rich, and yet uh, happiness stays relatively constant. Uh, and the question is that you know if we are richer than ever, why are we not happier? Th- why are we not happier than ever? And what explanation is that? Um, if we assume that happiness is directly tied to our control of time, uh, we find that even though we're getting a lot richer, we're actually not in control of our time. We're working more hours on the job. We are doing more thing. We are, we have less autonomy in our lives than perhaps we did. Uh, we, the collective we did sort of 50 years ago, even though we make more money, which is why happiness levels have stayed the same plus or minus decline, depending on who you asked. There's a, a book that he quotes called 30 Lessons for Living, which apparently where the author kind of interviewed people on the deathbed, you know, standard affair um no one not a single person said that to be happy you should work as hard as you can to buy the things that you want and you know unsurprisingly quality friendships being part of something bigger than yourselves quality unstructured time with the kids uh essentially sort of controlling your time is the highest dividend that money pays shall we keep going
1: i'm a little skeptical of the deathbed interview thing. oh yeah it's quite in vogue it's been in vogue for a while <laughs> <laughs> yeah an exit interview <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
0: That would be a great title for a book. <laughs> uh,
1: exit interviews: <laughs> interviewing startup founders on their deathbed. <laughs> um, the reason is this: like I think the things that would be salient and that would come to mind on someone's deathbed, um, I you know, I don't, I, I doubt whether that is whether those are the same things that affected their tangible day-to-day happiness for the sort of decades that they were alive, mm. you know? or things like spending quality
0: time with the kids and uh, just hang, hanging out with friends and
1: living a life true to yourself and traveling more? No, no I can get on board with that stuff. But for example, uh, you know, s- suppose... I mean, like almost
0: in university, people say that I wish I hadn't worked so hard. Mm. <laughs> Give me a sec. Yeah. Sure, take your time. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> What was that? Oh. For context, I'm squeezing my belly fat and Mac has just made a snippy snippy
1: gesture. <laughs> Implying plastic surgery, I think. Look, no, I'm making the simple point that, okay, I'll, I'll give you a hypothetical scenario in which I think the person on the deathbed might not be reliable. No.
0: For the record, I agree that there is, you, you know, it's not a 100% sort of barometer by which you should live your life. But I think it's, you know, the exit interview is somewhat, somewhat useful to know. to to hear yeah fine if if the bar is like oh that's kind of interesting fine whatever is that the bar the bar is that's kind of interesting and it potentially is uh a a data point for me to figure out how to spend my time and if it's a if it's and if it's a decision between spending more time with the kids versus having a longer commute to spend more time at work to make a bit more money hmm I would hope that the exit interview would give me evidence that spending more time with my friends and my kids would actually probably be ha- make
1: me happier in the long run. I'm not advocating for the spending less time with your kids. Okay, <laughs> good. <laughs> this, is why, this is why I use that as an example. Let's be example. clear on that. <laughs> but it's just like a legibility
0: thing, man. What illegible sources of happiness do you think are there that people on their deathbeds
1: would not would not actually sort of genuinely appreciate? <coughs> Not that I'm not saying that the, the, the sources of happiness are illegible. Yeah. But for example, suppose look, it's hard for me to come up with an example because it's going to be quite extreme and it's going to make me seem out of touch. <laughs> <laughs> and by all means, continue.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> all right. Suppose.
0: All right, whatever. Let's move on. <laughs> Great. Chapter eight is called The Man in the Car Paradox.
1: Have you guys come across this? The Man in the Car
2: Paradox? No.
1: Yes. I think I know what this is. This, is actually, this actually changed my life. This changed my, this like, All rewired right. my brain. Talk to me. All right, here it is. There's a man in the car and he looks out of his window on one side and he sees a man in a fancier car. And he's like, man, if I had the, uh, what's a fancy car? If I had the Lamborghini. the Lamborghini, <laughs> man, that would be good. And then on the other side of him, there is a man in a bus. The man in the bus is looking at the normal the man in the normal car and he's thinking, man, if I only had my own car, I wouldn't have to take this bus every day. And then on the other side of the bus, there's some guy who's like walking and he's thinking, oh, man, if only I could afford to get a bus, I wouldn't have to walk everywhere. Is that, is that the paradox? Uh, no, but continue. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that's basically it. It's uh, sort of this, you know, this uh, re- re- recursion of some sort where, you know... It's always going to be bigger cars to reach for and things like that, you know? Okay. Um, So, yes, I agree with that.
0: Uh, It's not quite the man in the car paradox that Morgan is describing. All right. Perhaps Morgan was just mistaken. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) It's all right, Morgan. You can. uh, (laughs) Okay. Anyway, so Morgan's version of the man man in the car paradox is basically um, when you see someone driving a fancy car, you almost never think that, whoa, that guy's cool. Instead, you think, damn, if I were driving that fancy car, people would think I'm cool. (laughs) That's good. And Morgan apparently wrote a letter to his son when his son was born, um, presumably for the son to read in the future, that said that you think you want uh, at, at some point at some point in life, you will think you want a car, a watch, a fancy house. You don't. You actually want the admiration and respect of others. And you think that having expensive stuff will bring it. It almost never does, especially from the people that you want to respect and admire you humility kindness and empathy will bring far more respect than horsepower ever will i was like damn that's good that's Wait, a man of the car paradox he didn't end the letter by telling his son to start investing at age six <laughs> he probably did he didn't he didn't include the whole letter man oh sorry Okay. because otherwise his son would lose his would lose his edge <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and will not be the next Warren Buffett. <laughs> yeah so i think man of the car paradox is interesting um, yeah that's funny do you feel like you do that as in thinking that people will think i'm cool Avex.
1: Well, looking at someone who has something and you think, and, and not thinking that guy's cool, but instead thinking that like, why would be cool if I had that thing?
0: I almost never think about, I, 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 I almost never, never think of the person who has the thing. I always imagine myself having the thing. I don't, I don't usually then take it a step further to think, man, people would think I'm cool if I had the thing, but I tend, th- I tend to think it would be cool if I had the thing. Why would it be cool if you had? So, for, so for example, if I saw someone with like a freaking I don't know red camera or like a Ari Alexa Mini, which is like a seventy five thousand dollar camera, mm. I might think, oh, it would be cool if I had that because then my videos would be great. I wouldn't think, damn, the guy who has that camera is really cool, and I wouldn't think, damn, people are going to think I'm the coolest shit if I have an Ari Alexa.
2: Hmm. It would just be a sort of it would be cool to have the thing, which is, uh, yeah. What about you, Mac? Um, I don't think i experienced this with kind of physical things i think i felt this way a little bit with if it's like i see another athlete that's a lot faster yeah <laughs> I, I don't think that they're, they're cool because of that i i just think that like it'd be cool if i could run that fast yeah. or cycle that fast <laughs> so right. i get it in that sense i don't know yeah. if that's like unhealthy or not so if someone had a really cool bike on the road you wouldn't be like damn that guy's really cool you'd be like damn that bike's really cool <laughs> i mean with bikes it's a bit different because if you if your bike like is above a certain price threshold it just it signifies you're a bit of a a bit of a tool, yeah. <laughs> okay, much. fine. There's like a sweet spot somewhere in there where, like, it's a nice bike, but you're not too much of a tool. Is, is yours above the threshold? Uh, no, come on. <laughs> is your backup bike above the
1: threshold? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> <we're> backup bike.
2: <laughs>
0: uh. um, anyway, chapter nine is wealth is what you don't see. Apparently, um, Rihanna sued her financial advisor. Because she made all this money and then spent it on a load of stuff, and then she went broke. And the financial advisor, in his statement, <laughs> said, "Was it really necessary to tell Rihanna that when you spend money on things, you end up with the things and not the money?" <laughs> 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 Apparently, yes, is, is, is Morgan's commentary on that. Wait, how is she doing now? Is she all right? I'm pretty sure she's fine now. Yeah, I won't shed any tears. shed any tears for her. All right. Um, sort of, this chapter talks about the distinction between wealthy versus rich. Rich equals current income. Wealth equals income not spent. An option not yet taken to buy something later. Wealth gives you options. Um, He says, it's easy to find rich role models. It's harder to find wealthy ones because by definition, their wealth is more hidden. Most people don't want to be rich. They want to be wealthy. They want freedom and flexibility, which is what financial assets that are not yet spent can give you. But it's so ingrained in us that to have money means to spend money, that we don't see the restraint that it takes to be wealthy. And because we don't see it, we can't learn from it. And so, yeah. When we get money, we we spend it away on, you know, Arcturix jackets and don't realize that, yeah, mm. wealth is what you don't see. Chapter 10 was really interesting. Um, it's called Save Money. And it's basically like a, the entire chapter is an exhortation on people to save more money. Uh, and there were a few things, you know, uh, you know, he's, he starts off by saying, let me convince you to save money. Um But do people really need to be convinced? He says, yes, they do. (laughs) And then basically spends the whole chapter trying to convince you to save money. The interesting things that I found here was that he defines savings as the gap between your ego and your income. And I I was like, oh, okay, that's interesting. And then I started doing lots of self-introspection thinking, huh, okay, like to what extent is my ego sort of uh, dictating my spending habits when it comes to my own money?
1: Wait, I don't get it. What does that mean?
0: Saving is the gap between your ego and your income. I don't get it. As in the point that he's making is that
2: if your ego is low and you don't need to satisfy it by buying things, then the gap between your ego and your income is large and your savings are large.
0: Oh, I see. Okay, yeah. But if you're not saving very much, then you know, assuming we were beyond that point of sort of the the bare necessities type situation. Okay. At that point, most of the things that we buy are related to ego, he says. All right. Um, the other interesting thing is that you don't need a reason to save. Uh, I've, I've, I've often heard this when, when I exhort people to save save and invest. Like, invest for, save for what? Like, what's the point? Like, you know, I'm not planning to buy a house. Um, and his point is that you actually don't need to, a reason to save. You're saving to hedge against future unknown risks. Um, he uses the example a lot of, of, like, you know, an unexpected medical bill. Haha, <laughs> lol, Americans. Um, but also, like, literally, sort of the by definition and by nature unexpected events are unexpected therefore you can't plan for them therefore you need to save to have money in the bank basically to mitigate the risk of future bad things happening to you i think you're going to get cancelled for saying
1: haha lol americans as mm-hmm. the concept <laughs> of, why would i get cancelled for that at the concept of unexpected medical bills <laughs> as in lol the american healthcare system i'm
0: referring to the american health care system i'm not i'm not referring to poor people in america who can't afford health insurance and I think it's okay to make fun of the American healthcare system because, in general, America is a monolith, and it's it's not like you're punching down. Look, I'm fine with it. If I, I was making fun of, fun of the and... Dominican I... Republic healthcare system, then that yeah, would be punching yeah, down. Yeah,
2: yeah. Rinse is going out.
0: <laughs>
1: Look, you were going to get cancelled for one thing. Now you're going to get cancelled for something <laughs> <laughs> Um Chapter eleven is called "Reasonable versus Rational," which
0: we've defined already. Aim to be reasonable, not necessarily rational human beings aren't rational aiming for rationality is unlikely to help being reasonable involves having self-awareness about your your own emotions and your psyche set things up in a way that you don't fold chapter 12 i can't remember what it's about didn't take any notes chapter 13 it's called room for error which is all about margin of safety oh that was a really nice thing here um uh, what was the context yeah so we t- he, t- he 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 talked about this uh <laughs> this uh syndrome Called the Russian roulette is Theor-
1: theoretically good for you syndrome, <laughs> 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 which is a, a syndrome that some like rational bros have. <laughs> oh, of like death is like a neutral thing or something, or like you don't, you know, if if you're no longer alive to. D- <laughs> oh no no it's oh. it's it's not quite that
0: it, it's it's more the lack of understanding that you need to avoid ruin at all costs. Oh okay. And that for certain things, you know. R- risking financial ruin is just not worth the potential upside okay um so russian roulette is theoretically
1: good for you syndrome <laughs> wait no i was the same like what who think like what would make someone think this like what's an example of playing of thinking that russian roulette is good for you um is russian roulette just an urban myth by the way or do people actually play this game i know it's like a and by when i say people i'm sure someone i'm sure some people somewhere potentially in Russia, have played this game. <laughs> but I'm asking, like, is it an actual thing? I find it hard to imagine it's an actual thing. Okay. So in the chat,
0: so uh, an important cousin of room for error is what I call optimism bias in risk-taking, or Russian roulette should statistically work syndrome, an attachment to favorable odds when the downside is unacceptable in any circumstance. Nassim Taleb says you can be risk-loving and yet completely averse to ruin, and indeed you should, The idea is that you have to take risk to get ahead, but no risk that can wipe you out is ever worth taking. The odds are are in your favor when playing Russian roulette, but the downside is not worth the potential upside. There is no margin of safety that can compensate for the risk. It's the same with money. The odds of many lucrative things are in your favor. Real estate prices go up most years, and during most years, you'll get a paycheck every other week. But if something has 95% odds of being right, the 5% odds of being wrong means you will almost certainly experience the downside at some point in your life. And if the cost of that downside is ruin, the upside, the other 95% of the time, uh, likely isn't worth the risk, no matter how appealing it looks. Leverage is the devil, the devil here. Leverage, taking on debt to make your money go further, pushes routine risks into something capable of producing ruin. The danger is that rational optimism most of the time makes the odds of ruin some of the time. The result is we systematically underestimate risk. Housing prices fell 30% last decades, a few companies defaulted on their debt. That's capitalism, it happens. But those with high leverage had double wipeout. Not only were they left broke, but being wiped out erased every opportunity to get back in the game at the very moment opportunity was ripe. A homeowner wiped out in 2009 had no chance of taking advantages of cheap mortgage rates in 2010. Lehman Brothers had no chance of investing in cheap debt in 2009. They were done. Um, yeah. So I guess the, the, the real life example is sort of thinking, stock market always goes up. Therefore, I should, I should re-mortgage my house, take out all of my life savings and bet it on the stock market you know yeah <laughs> yes in the long term you're probably right but you run the risk of financial ruin should the crash happen tomorrow and if, and if you were if you're financially ruined it means you physically cannot get fiscally cannot get back in the game a week later even though russian roulette should statistically work all righty going on the home straight now chapter 14 is called you'll change which is basically talking about how all of our preferences change as we age um, the interesting thing about about well, like, what I found about this is that he says that anytime you are operating at the extremes of anything, you are increasing the odds that you will regret that decision further down the line. So what you want to aim for is moderation on all fronts. And the example he uses are your commute time, the amount of time you spend with your family, the amount of working hours that you have and your salary. Basically, you minimize the risk of regret if you go for moderation on, on all of these things that you care about whereas if you for example think oh you know for the next 5 years I'm going to go extreme and making loads of money and not spending any time with my family chances are you're going well you're increasing the risk that you're going to regret that decision given the with ch- given we know that preferences will change over time equally if you say oh for the next 5 years I'm just going to be completely present with the family 100% of the time and not worry about making any money at all you you know you're more of a liable to regret that decision rather than if you had some kind of level of moderation involved um, chapter 15 kind of talks about uh, it's it's, I, I, it's 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 more like specific to stocks. Um, but it's 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 sort of like like if you if you invest in 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 stocks, occasionally you will lose money, and people view that as if it, as if it's a fine. Like you know, they have done something wrong. They're being fined this money, and it is a bad thing that the money has gone. And he says that a more sensible slash healthy way of looking at it is thinking of it as the price of admission. Like it's a fee that you have to pay. Like, for example, you know, the hundred dollars you have to pay to get into Disneyland is not a fine. It's a fee. And in general, most people are happy to pay that fee because going to Disneyland is fun and it's a nice experience for you and the kids. Um, and he says the price of admission into the stock market is the uncertainty and the volatility. And you have to think of it as a fee rather than as a fine, because then you, you just won't bother. Uh, then you won't worry about um, uh, you won't worry about uh, the, the, the money that you've lost. And finally, the last notes I've taken are in chapter chapter 16, which is called me and you. I thought this was very interesting. Um, this was all about how basically people are playing different games, and yet people don't realize that other people are playing different games. and so 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 for example, like in in the context of like back in the day, like you know Yahoo's stock price was like absolutely huge. Um, and people were buying it at like a ridiculously high valuation stock price. But the people who were buying it at that ridiculous valuation were the day traders, whose aim the, and the game that they were playing is: I know it's high, I know it's not worth the amount I'm paying for it, but that that doesn't matter to me because I'm going to sell it by lunchtime, and as long as the price keeps on going up, which you know statistically it will do because it's been going up every day for the last 100 days, then I'm going to make money. Um, the problem is that there were also long-term value investors who invest in things that they think the value is right for and intend to hold it for the long term, who are now like, well. Objectively, there's no way this company can actually be worth that much. But loads of people are buying it at that much. So it must be worth that much. And I guess I have to get in on this thing and hold it for the next 10 years. And then they buy it at the ridiculously high price. But what they don't realize is that the people who are causing the price to go that high are the day traders, the ones who are playing an entirely different game to the one that they're playing. And that's why what Morgan says in the book is that there, there is no rational price to pay for any kind of stock. And people like, to, like doing this thing where you value a certain stock at a certain price but it all massively depends on what game you're playing. And I actually think this has more abstractable lessons for life rather than just for investing, where people are just playing a di- may well be playing a different game to you in almost any domain that you can think of. And if you don't realize that they're playing a different domain, a different game, you'll assume they're playing the same game as you and then you'll change your behavior based on what they're doing, which could potentially be a bad thing.
1: What's an example? Of,
0: what's an example of this outside of the stock stuff? I mean, there's a few like trite examples that come to mind. So, for example, in the for for example, in the school situation, in the in the school, uh, okay. So, for example, in the university situation, um, there are some people that are going to be gunning for rank one uh, because they are, yeah. You know, for example, to use to use a medical scenario, they're very interested in 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 sort of ranking in that number one competitive post in the country because they're desperate to be a pediatric endocrinologist with an interest in like rogue diseases that requires you to rank first in in, in your year. That's a different sort of game to kind of the normal medical student who actually doesn't care about that specific thing and actually cares about having a balanced, happy, healthy, meaningful, fulfilling life. But if that you know, medical student sees other people doing this thing, like, oh my God, that person is in the library for 18 hours a day and they're working really hard. I suck. My life is terrible. Mm. Then they are liable to change their behavior based on that. And I've seen this time and time again and feel like, oh my God, I'm doing the bad thing. Not actually realizing that that person is playing a different game to the game that you're playing. And so you really want to think about just kind of what's the game that you're playing. Are you competing with people in that game? You know, in an ideal world, you wouldn't be, but okay. If you are, then make sure they're playing the same game as you. Otherwise you will be using the wrong information to change your behavior.
1: That's a good example. Thank you.
0: So that was all of my notes from the book. Let me just see if there's any final thing.
1: Maybe hey, we're recording for an hour and 40 minutes.
0: Yeah. great for two episodes. Uh, that's basically it. Um, I think it's a good book. They were quite a like, as I I was listening to it, I had to stop the car slash stop my gym workout at various intervals to take notes on it, because there was stuff that was genuinely new new to me. I think kind of for me, biggest takeaways were number one, uh, the sort of just actually appreciating that um, no one is dumb. (laughs) Every decision people make about money makes perfect sense to them. And so I should have a bit more empathy when sort of talking, when thinking about how other people make money decisions. Number two, I really like the stuff about staying wealthy being a combination of paranoia and frugality. Uh, I think I've got the paranoia down. I need to get the frugality down a bit more. I liked the idea of not needing to save for anything specific and saving being a hedge against future uncertainty. And I, yeah, I, I like the, the sort of, you know, the highest form of wealth is the ability to wake up in the morning and think I can do whatever I want today because the, the, that's sort of the direction that I've very much been leaning for most of, sort of my, my adult life. And it was
1: nice to see that validated. So, should we call it a day? Yeah, I've just got a couple of bits. I remember earlier this week in my, in my second brain in Rome, I wrote down a thing that I wanted to bring up on the podcast. Let's see if I can find it. Rome is loading.
2: Right? <laughs> Sorry. What? Fuck them kids.
0: <laughs> I'm not sure why Mac just says that out loud. <laughs>
1: <laughs> what the hell, Mac? Yeah. <laughs> What's going on, dude? It's your phone. <laughs> oh yeah so a couple of things earlier this week I had dinner with some friends and we were talking about the kids stuff and I thought that that had some pretty interesting uh, outcomes one of the friends mentioned that when he was about 10 years old he and his mum went to some like mother and son weekend camp kind of thing if anyone watches Arrested Development it kind of reminded me of Mother Boy <laughs> Mother boy is <laughs> a mother son sort of dance that Lucille and Bustle go to every year. Anyway, he, when he was ten, he and his mum went to went to Mother Boy, and it's like a a weekend of uh, mother son activities. And uh, apparently, there was a lot of table tennis. And then also one of the act, in one of the activities, the uh, the the mothers had to write down uh, some questions for the sons, um, and. Um, one of the questions that my friend's mum wrote down was, uh, "What?" I think it was something like, "What do you need from me?" or something like that. And the answer that my friend wrote down was, "I need more respect and I need more pocket money." <laughs> the pocket <laughs> pocket money thing—it's just kind of funny. But the respect—the respect, yeah. respect thing—now that's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> and he he can't remember quite exactly what was going through his mind at age ten when he wrote that for something was. Mm. Um that's a topic for another time. <laughs> yeah, so I thought that was that was a pretty interesting Okay, yeah, story. no that, that that is actually quite interesting. Um have you added that to your manifesto? It it's going in the manifesto. And um this other friend who was at this dinner, she's broadly happy with her childhood and fond mem Yeah, exactly. Uh fond memories and things, but one thing that she kind of has recently been sort of noticed/grappling uh, slash grappling with is that she felt like when she was younger, no one really asked, no one ever really asked, like truly asked for her opinion on things. And now as an adult, she's trying to like undo this and kind of, you know, voice her opinion more often and kind of, you know, that kind of, that kind of stuff, which I think is also very related to my, my theses uh, around the kid stuff. Cool. So that was interesting. All right. Do you want to read a review and then we'll, we'll call
0: it a day? <laughs> what? What does it say?
2: <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay, you, you, you've got to read this out. What does it say?
1: Yeah. They, they ended the review by saying, don't read my review on the podcast. <laughs> okay. <laughs> is it bad?
2: Could we, could we change to Table? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to have a read?
1: Let's have a read. Which one is it? It's a Great Episode one.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Thanks, Tame. Great topic, great episode. I only like listening to Tame. You have no values, Ali. You only care about money. People like you are disgusting. Don't read, don't read my review of the podcast. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs>
2: wow,
0: wow. Well, after this, two parter about the psychology of money.
1: <laughs> What's this guy's problem? <laughs> well, it was a five-star review, so <laughs> I'm not complaining. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Tame. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There were two more things <laughs> that I wanted to bring up. The first was that i think a few times a year you have a you have a conversation with someone who you know feels like they're a kindred spirit i think i mentioned this a while ago where we chatted to some guy who was also working on a similar thing to causal earlier this week we chatted to uh the grant the granddaddy of uh multi-dimensional modeling <laughs> uh, we, we chatted to the Naval Ravikant. <laughs> no no we chatted to the founder of a company called anaplan uh anaplan is you know Ca- causal's causal is is sort of like a modern reincarnation of anaplan like it's all the same concepts and stuff like that um and we chatted to the, the founder of this thing and it was uh it was really cool to chat to someone who there was there was like no ex you know usually when we're talking to if we're talking to someone about causal there's a lot of like groundwork you have to get through there's a lot of like explanation you have to give and even then you're not sure if they quite understand what the hell you're like being on a first about.
0: date with someone and you have to go like what do you do and all this stuff
1: yeah yeah maybe it's a bit like that
0: basically um, covering the same ground as you've done every other first date
1: uh yeah but th- i think the the, dif- the difficulty uh le- less so in like the first date scenario more so in the cold scenario is that there's still some like uncertainty around like do they have the right m- mental model for yeah. like what what the hell it is we're doing mm. and it was just so nice to like talk to someone where you know we there was no groundwork to be laid, you know? <laughs> and, and this guy is actually just like super cool as well. I think, uh, I think Anaplan, I think Anaplan is just like a really interesting and underrated company. They, was, they started in the UK, uh, in York, I think, uh, in like Yorkshire, or, uh, well, York, in, in Yorkshire. <laughs> um, and I think like their core engineering team is still in like York, but it, now it's like this huge kind of public company, um, And this founder chap uh, is now like sort of retired, living in New Zealand, um, still doing a few things that have monetary value. Um, There's a really good talk. Basically, I think one of the interesting things was that there was no groundwork to be laid and it it felt like there was this connection thing. And then the other interesting thing was that, you know, he's like in his 60s now or something like that. And it was it was cool to hear like his war stories, you know, like. Over the course of his career, you know, there's like, you know, a, do- a dozen or so, like, cool war stories that Not he's like the kind Blitz. of... Blitz. Sorry? Like the Blitz. Metaphorically. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, and it was, like, cool to hear that. And it kind of just got me thinking of, like, you know, you kind of... When old people talk about stuff, you know, they, they often have, like, some war stories in some sense. I was kind of thinking like, hmm, I wonder what like what kind of war stories we'll be telling when we're like 50 or something of like, oh, back in the day when we did this thing. (laughs) Back in the day, you'd read out a review on the podcast and then you would be able to sleep for weeks. (laughs) Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) Those were the days, man, (laughs) the good old days. Yeah, so that was one of the things. The other one of the things is that so I had a sort of life coaching slash therapy session this week uh, with a chap. Uh, across the internet. It was like a video call kind of thing. Uh, and that was pretty interesting. And I'd, I'd recommend this kind of experience uh, for most people, I think, because that was the first time, um, it was the, f- I think it had a very novel feeling to it because ah, I think here's what it was. Usually when talking about your own feelings and things like that, and like, you know, trying to introspect and, you know, maybe do that with other people, Um, to understand yourself better or something. I think usually the other people don't, it's sort of seen as like a, maybe this just comes down to training or something, but I feel like, you know, generally if you're talking about your feelings with your friends, Mm. it is not, it is often not terribly critical and not, not critical in the sense of like criticizing one another, but critical in the sense of like, really getting to the bottom of things. And so like with this guy, when we were doing it, you know, for the first, you know, the first layer or two of the conversation might be the kind of conversation I'd have with a friend of like, oh, you know, sometimes I feel like bad or anxious about this thing. I wonder what's going on there. Um, But usually I think with a friend, I think either because, yeah, maybe it comes down to training. Maybe it comes down to just not really, wanting to push too hard against someone i find that usually people will generally stop one or two layers in um and i think it's it's often weird or sort of like uncomfortable to push someone more more than sort of like one or two layers in mm. but this guy's approach was basically to i mean i i, I think yeah, I, th- I think the cool thing was that he'd asked me about something, asked me to kind of explain it. And then he was very, <laughs> he was very happy to say, you know, to kind of doubt my explanation. He was very happy, you know, so he, he, you know, I, I think the thing we were talking about was that, you know, I often feel anxious about not having gotten enough work done or something like that. Um, and he was like, okay, uh, try and like conjure up that feeling or whatever. Um, and I think that dad like wasted a bunch of time in the afternoon. So I, I was already feeling a bit like bad slash anxious about not getting enough work done. I was like, all right, man, I'm there. <laughs> then, hit me. <laughs> and then he was like, okay, like, what's your, yeah, you know, what's your anxiety saying? He's an American guy. Uh, and I think one really cool distinction that he made was that wh- when I was trying to explain it, I was saying, you know, I feel, I feel bad for, not having, uh, you know, done much work or something. Um, And a couple more times, I tried to like explain it with something like that. And he said something along the line, he he told me that basically what I was doing was summarizing the feeling, but not actually sort of explaining the feeling. And I think this distinction between like summarizing and like actually explaining was pretty interesting. Hmm. Um, And so I think when, when we eventually got down to it, the thing we narrowed down on, <laughs> and I think this is—I think this is like a smallish part. I think this this is like a, a chunk of the problem. I don't think we're like right down to the bottom of it, hmm. uh, or, or my various other problems. But the thing—the thing that we kind of narrowed down on that he—that he seemed convinced by. After after you know a lot of things I said, he wasn't convinced by. He was like, no, I don't think that's what's going on. Let's let's try like uh, a different approach to get at the right let's answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, we kind of narrowed down on the fact that one of the things I'm scared or I, 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 I am not sort of objectively scared about causal as a company failing. Um, I, you know, I think I can, I can accept that there is some sort of risk of that and I'm sure I'll be bummed out or whatever, but like, I I don't think that's a huge deal or anything like that. But the thing that I'm more scared of is the idea that if it fails, uh, there might be some people who feel sorry for me as a result who might sort of uh you know look at look at me and think oh you know p- poor guy his company's just failed you know um yeah the, the sort of f- other people feeling sorry for you uh and this is something i i sort of narrowed down on before as something that i for some reason i feel like quite strongly about this like i have this very strong aversion to having other people feel sorry for me and and this seems i've talked to a few friends about this um and this seems to be like a weird quirk of mine that i'm i'm trying to figure out but we kind of went sort of one layer deeper than that which was that so i was trying to figure out okay you know why why is it so why is what why why do i think it would be so bad if people felt sorry for me um and the the thing that i kind of thought was that yeah i i think and this is just me like um you know Rehashing some of those thoughts on the podcast because I think it might be interesting for other people. But I think the sort of line of reasoning kind of went that I personally, oh, oh, yeah. So I, I think the reason I wouldn't like it if other people felt sorry for me was because I think if they feel sorry for me, they're they're feeling sorry for me because they think that I personally feel like I'm in a terrible situation, given that my company has failed or whatever. Um, when actually. That's not quite, you know, the, the external metrics of like, oh, you know, spending four or five years on your life of your life on something and it doesn't really go anywhere. You know, the, the, the sort of external appearance of that thing is quite bad, but I think the internal experience is a little bit different and the sort of internal compass of doing something like that is, uh, is, is very different to like the, the external stuff that you can see of like time spent and money earned or whatever. Okay. Um, and so Yeah. I think we, we said something along the lines of, yeah, the, the reason that I wouldn't want them to feel the reason that I'd, I'd be, you know, I'd feel bad about other people feeling sorry for me in this situation is because I think it wouldn't be warranted or something. Uh, I can't remember. Actually, I made some notes. Um, Is any of this making any sense? Or do I just sound like a crazy person on the podcast right now?
0: you're saying it's this mismatch between sort of what you perceive people will think that you are feeling and what you are actually feeling. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that sort of that feels annoying because you're like, "Damn, these people all, all these people think I'm actually heartbroken, but I'm actually not heartbroken, but I can't tell them that I'm not actually heartbroken because then it, it would see, it would seem like a as if I'm actually heartbroken and I'm just in denial."
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I yeah, yeah, I think that that's part of, I think that's part of like the conundrum basically. Um so we kind of talked about that. And there was one other thing. So is that why you feel guilty for not working? I think partly. I think if you chase it, if you, cha- if you chase down the whys long enough, mm. there is an underlying fear of having other people feel wrongfully feel sorry for you. Okay. So it's not the fear that the company will fail if you don't work hard enough.
0: It's the fear that people will feel sorry for you for the company failing because you haven't worked hard enough. But crucially, the fact that they're feeling sorry, sorry for you, it's, it's not actually <laughs> warranted because you're actually completely fine. Not completely fine. No, but, but like not as fine. But like my, my compass is,
1: was. my compass is, is not the same, is not the... You're playing a different game. External. To the game um, that people think you're playing. Yeah, 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 exactly. Okay. So you're that people are thinking that you're playing a different game to what you actually are? Yeah, I think basically, I think there is this image of the sort of washed up sort of failed entrepreneur who, you know sort of squandered a bunch of time doing some stupid thing that amounted to nothing. I feel like there, there is this sort of narrative sort of image slash narrative that deep down, I really fear being like pattern matched onto that. If, uh, if things don't go well, I, anyway, that, I think, I don't think that's like, maybe that's like 20% of why I feel bad about work or something like that. But anyway, that was the first session. Pretty interesting experience.
0: Okay, interesting.
1: Is it something you'd recommend? Yeah, for sure, for sure. What if he'd be down for doing it on the podcast?
0: Sorry, <laughs> w- w- would you be down for having a session on the podcast? Um, I don't know. Possibly.
2: Hmm.
0: Do you record your sessions? No. Why not? I don't know. I mean, start recording them, and it, it might be interesting. You know, if there's if there's a session that you think was was particularly valuable, that didn't sort of involve other people who wouldn't consent to being on the podcast.
1: Then. Yeah, I think recording them would actually be pretty interesting. Yeah.
0: Like I record all, all, all of the Zoom calls I'm having with everyone these days just in case it'll be interesting to look back on in the future. And I have like a Google Drive thing on G Suite that has all my recordings, Yeah, which takes up terabytes and terabytes. But like it's the sort of stuff that's actually quite useful to have.
1: Yeah, that's pretty cool. So you should do that. Hmm, nice. I think that those are all of my things. Great. Thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you. Wait, wait, wait. If anyone is, uh, if any <laughs> listeners are in, uh, where are we going in the Dominican Republic,
2: Mac? Uh, Punta Cana.
1: <laughs> if anyone is in Punta Cana, we're going to be there for uh, the next month. Uh, we'd love to hang out and drop me a DM on Instagram or an email. At hi, at not overthinking. And hopefully see you in Punta Cana. Great. All right. What up?